of you will be familiar with the Adnan Syed case, the story of a Baltimore 17-year-old convicted in 2000 for the 1999 murder of his ex-girlfriend Heimin Lee. It was a year ago that his story burst onto the podosphere, and even though the 12-episode season of the podcast serial, which examined the background to the case, ended 10 months ago, an intensive, social media-driven, informal investigation has continued with a number of other podcasts, notably led by attorney and family friend Rabia Chowdhury, who originally brought Adnan Syed's case to the attention of serial presenter Sarah Koenig. This slew of ongoing podcasts is spurred by increasingly disturbing revelations through detailed examination of documents and tape recordings that the way in which the original investigation was conducted by the Baltimore County and then the Baltimore City Police was at best sloppy and neglectful and possibly deliberately inventive, dishonest, deceitful and hiding of exculpatory evidence. Much of the information on Adnan's case that is currently being exposed is persuasive of his possibly being innocent. It certainly reeks of corner-cutting, evidence manufacturing and witness manipulation on the part of law enforcement. Quite rightly, this is arousing the disgust and outrage of many, with of course the inevitable naysayers spitting contempt and derision on what is being revealed. The big debate around Adnan Syed's case is whether he is innocent or guilty. Even the Maryland criminal justice system seems to be shifting uncomfortably in its seat and pondering the implications of the unpleasant facts that are coming out about what was going on 16 years ago under its authority. In May of this year, the Maryland Court of Special Appeals granted Adnan Syed's application for post-conviction relief without even a formal hearing for oral arguments, remanding the case back to circuit court for it to consider Adnan's request for a new trial based on ineffective assistance of counsel and for key alibi testimony, previously conveniently shoved aside, to be included as part of the record. The circuit court has yet to decide on these matters but the swiftness and readiness with which the Court of Special Appeals passed on the case bodes well for Adnan Syed. Adnan was sentenced to life plus 30 years, not life without parole, but Maryland is one of only four states where the governor has the right to rule against a recommendation for release by the Parole Commission. The fact is that no governor has granted parole to a Maryland lifer in 20 years. So in effect, Adnan Syed has been sentenced to over 40 years in prison. Even were Maryland to get a governor more disposed to granting parole, it's unlikely that Adnan Syed would be recommended for release in the first place. Because, you see, he continues to protest his innocence of the murder of Heyman Lee. He shows no remorse. Because how can he demonstrate remorse for a crime he insists he didn't commit? I keep referring to Adnan Syed as the 17-year-old convicted for murder, because that was Adnan's age when the murder, for which he was held responsible by the state, took place. By the time he was convicted... He had just turned 19 a couple of weeks before, but the person who was being blamed for Heyman Lee's murder 
was a minor. A kid, a gawky teenager, not nearly fully formed cognitively, emotionally and socially. Even if the jury and the judge who convicted and sentenced Adnan Syed saw before them a young man, a young adult, the person who was dragged unceremoniously from his bed at an unearthly hour one winter Sunday morning and taken handcuffed into custody, never to return home, was a boy. A boy. Not a man. This fact has been referred to in passing on Serial and on subsequent podcasts. Rabia Chaudhry has pointed out that on one police document, Adnan's birthday had been recorded as May 1980 instead of May 1981. A mistake that, if not deliberate, certainly reflects an institutional mindset programmed to disregard his youth. But this issue of Adnan's status as a minor has been somewhat sidelined by the understandable indignation that Adnan should have been arrested in the first place, never mind sent to prison to spend possibly the rest of his life behind bars. That Adnan's sentence was severe and unjust because of his developmental age has been a relatively insignificant issue for the millions of now-addicted followers of his case, for whom the main thrust of interest is the debate over whether his sentence was based on wrongful conviction. At one of the serial presentations that Sarah Koenig and producer Julie Snyder gave over the summer in various concert venues around the country, I collared two avid serial fans who articulately expressed all the things that had drawn them to the series. Here, they talk about the criminal justice aspects of the story that had made an impact on them. Did you have any interest in the criminal justice system before you started listening to Serial? Oh, gosh. I mean, no. I was a police reporter in the 80s and oh, I covered okay. federal courts. Yeah. But I don't know if, gosh, I mean, I guess I hate to say it, I was more engaged in terms of the way they did the storytelling. Uh-huh. I mean, the story, it's itself is incredibly right. compelling but I don't know that I was able to make any connections to what to what I'd been through were there any surprises or shocks about the criminal justice system that you discovered oh well yeah I mean like I was I think more aware than probably the average person of the whole situation with you have someone who is given a certain level of immunity to turn evidence and I used to have police officers say to me, people always criticize this, but you don't have too many priests who witness a crime. You know, so... Are you, when you say that, you're thinking of Jay? Right, exactly. I mean, um, because a lot of people, a lot of people questioned, you know, I think if if he lied, you know, if one assumes he lied, I don't know how much he did it to get out of trouble. When you ask, was I shocked by things? Yes, that whole issue of Jay's... um, Untaped uh, Jay's tapes and how they were so inconsistent and how that wasn't questioned. I think it's kind of a scary thing because I think I do trust in the justice system, but it's also just a realization that, like, no matter what, if you're in the wrong place... Or, like, I don't don't know, it kind of makes you realize, like, 
it's just how innocent people go to jail. Even if Adnan really did it, you know, I, I think it, I think it's exactly what Sarah said tonight. Is that it, at the end of the, at the end of the day, it's not about whether he's innocent. It's about whether he should be in jail in the first place. And so. I, I think it's it's nothing that we can completely fix. There's no perfect way to know someone's guilt. But well, in that whole the whole issue of the second trial, because it sounds like he would have won the first trial. Mm-hmm. The one thing that always really hit me about the show is that you know look how much reporting they did, yeah. how many hours and hours, and they still couldn't solve the exactly. case. And you look at like how much. Apart- how much they have to do, yeah. Right, and police departments and how understaffed they are. Mm-hmm. and they, I mean, I guess they have some yeah. more tools in terms of technology that, than they did at the time. But, but yeah, just, police departments aren't like CSI. They can't, everyone can't be devoted to it. You know, there's really no plausible way that they could have spent, you know, this Yeah, time. so you feel for people who've lost loved ones because, you know, they're lucky. Resources. Well, look at what happened with Chandra Levy. They're redoing that case, and right. the family's going to have to go through it all over again. And, you know, so there are other real-life examples. Absolutely. See what I mean? In all their reflections on police methodology, witness persuasion, the effect of retrials on victims' families, and shock about how the criminal justice system works— Not once did they mention dismay over Adnan Syed having been tried as an adult and given such an onerous adult sentence. The serial team, even in trying to take the focus away from the fact of Adnan's innocence or guilt, pulled the focus towards inappropriate conviction and sentencing with regard to available evidence, rather than towards the inappropriateness of convicting and sentencing a minor as if he were an adult. The scary theme that one of the respondents refers to is not how juveniles end up going to prison, but how innocent people end up going to prison. The frustration at the end of the series was not that a teenager should have ended up in and still be in adult prison, but that hours of research by the serial team did not solve the truth about the crime. The question about whether Adnan should have been convicted in the first place, even when the focus is not on his actual innocence or guilt, is on the outrageousness of the flimsy evidence presented by the prosecution not arousing reasonable doubt as to his guilt. Yes, it is important whether Adnan Syed is innocent or guilty, and it is important to be working to exonerate him if indeed he is innocent, but it is also important that he was a teenager still with years of cognitive and emotional development ahead of him. This inexperienced and naive boy and his surrounding cohorts, the tossed aside or manipulated witnesses, should not have been exploited by the criminal justice system to get an easy conviction and to sentence him as an adult, conceding him no belief that his mind and his character were still malleable and rehabilitatable. Adnan Syed's case is significant in terms of justice for him personally and for what it appears to be revealing about the criminal justice system in Baltimore in the late 1990s, but he also represents all those young people whose lives have been fundamentally terminated when they're barely out of childhood. So, let's leave aside the question of Adnan's guilt or innocence for a moment. 
There's plenty of thorough hard work being done with integrity on his behalf in order to clear that up once and for all. A resolution may be in sight, just around the corner, or it may take several more years. But whatever the truth about Adnan Syed's connection to the murder of 18-year-old Haymin Lee, or the eventual outcome of his case, the fact remains that an adolescent boy, still in the throes of psychological development, was treated, judged, and punished like a fully individuated, cognitively, emotionally, and morally matured adult man. So what is inappropriate about a teenager who commits a horrible crime going to prison for the rest of his life? A kid in his late teens knows right from wrong, doesn't he? Well, yes. Intellectually, in pure terms of reason, teenagers have almost fully matured. But cognition and intellect are two different things. Knowing or being able to figure something out abstractly doesn't necessarily mean being endowed with adequate thought processes in order to react to or act on reason, particularly in moments of high excitement or stress. Indeed, immature thought processes can lead the mind to internal and external reactions based less on intellect and more on impulsive emotion or physiological urge, even if the abstract intellectual ability is highly developed. The frontal lobe of the human brain, which governs impulse control, risk assessment, decision-making, and moral reasoning, doesn't fully mature till around age 25. 17-year-olds are more governed by the amygdala, a part of the temporal lobe that drives instinctive reactions and negative emotions such as fear and aggression. It is this part of the brain that is engaged in the fight-or-flight response and which develops much earlier than other parts of the brain, as it promotes survival in human beings by equipping them with the ability to respond quickly and without conscious thought to threats and danger. Because the brain of the adolescent has yet to develop, there is huge potential once maturity is reached for the person to become more reasoned and less emotionally fired and impulsive in their reactions. The young adult develops the ability to integrate memory, personal desires, rules, morals, and concern for others towards a more balanced and complex way of thinking and responding to stimuli. It is these two factors that particularly render conviction of teenagers as adults as developmentally unsound and inappropriate. First, it's unreasonable to hold a person who is de facto at a disadvantage in their cognitive and emotional development to the same standard as a fully matured adult whose brain has the ability to function at a much higher level. Secondly, because adult sentences are qualitatively geared towards punishment rather than rehabilitation, they ignore the still burgeoning capacity for change within the young person and stunt that potential rather than engage it. Whether or not you regard the young person as meriting this possibility, from a societal perspective this is a profound waste of resources. Rather than facilitate change in vast numbers of youth who might be returned productively to society at a later stage, the American criminal justice system instead thrusts these young people into the throng of hardened adult criminals, where their ongoing propensity for character formation is pulled in a much more detrimental direction under the influence of adult offenders and where they run the risk of being harassed and physically abused.
The United States is unique in convicting children as adults and then sentencing them to severe penalties such as life imprisonment and even life without parole. Already, America is one of only 20% of countries that has life without parole sentences at all, never mind for children. The United States is nominally signed to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which says, The penitentiary system shall comprise treatment of prisoners, the essential aim of which shall be their reformation and social rehabilitation. Having life without parole as a routinely applied sentence is an absolute violation of that supposedly ratified principle. And here we're talking with reference to adults. There are 41,000 prisoners in the US serving life without parole. Australia, England and the Netherlands each have under 60 prisoners serving life without parole. That means that on a per capita basis, the United States outdoes those countries in sentencing people to life without parole by 51 times for Australia, 173 times for England, and 59 times for the Netherlands. Next week is a very important week for the future of the juvenile justice system in America. On Tuesday the 13th of October, the Supreme Court of the United States will hear oral arguments in Montgomery v. Louisiana with regard to the retroactivity of a ruling that was made by the Supreme Court in 2012, the so-called Miller v. Alabama ruling. In that decision, the Supreme Court decided that mandatorily sentencing defendants convicted of crimes, including homicide, that occurred before they were 18 to life without parole was unconstitutional and that it violated the Eighth Amendment. That's the part of the American Bill of Rights prohibiting the federal government from imposing excessive bail, excessive fines, or cruel and unusual punishments, including torture. Henry Montgomery was sentenced to life without parole after his 1963 murder of a police officer, just a few days after his 17th birthday. The Miller v. Alabama ruling was a more all-embracing ruling that followed on from the 2010 ruling Graham v. Florida, in which life without parole was prohibited for those convicted of non-homicide crimes that took place before the 18th birthday. jump back a bit in juvenile justice history to take a look at where these cases stand in the chronology of juvenile sentencing in America. I wonder how many people realise, particularly non-Americans, that it was only 10 years ago in 2005 that the United States abolished the death penalty for those convicted of crimes that took place when they were aged under 18. But the arrival at this ruling, the landmark Roper v. Simmons ruling, came slowly. Seventeen years before, in 1988, there was the Thompson v. Oklahoma ruling. This was also predicated on the Eighth Amendment issue of cruel and unusual punishment and abolished the death penalty for a crime committed when the convicted defendant had been under 16 years old. The rationale for this was stated as being evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. At that time, all other industrialized Western nations, as well as many U.S. jurisdictions, had banned execution for crimes committed under 16 years of age. 
In a seeming quick backlash to this, apparently to some, unpalatable ruling, a year later in 1989, the Supreme Court in Stanford v. Kentucky ruled that those committing crimes at 16 could be sentenced to death. Though, interestingly, in 2003, Kentucky Governor Paul E. Patton commuted the death sentence of convicted murderer Kevin Stanford, and the Roper v. Simmons ruling, where all death penalty sentences for under-18s were abolished, came within two years, hard on the heels of Governor Patton's 2003 decision. However, in the same year that Kentucky's Governor Patton commuted the death sentence of Kevin Stanford, the last person to be executed in the United States for a crime committed at age 17 was killed by the state of Oklahoma at age 32. As late as 1999, Oklahoma also executed a man of 29 for a crime he had committed at age 16. In all, during the 20 years leading to the Roper v. Simmons ruling abolishing the death penalty for offending minors, the United States executed 22 young men who had all, bar the 16-year-old just mentioned, been convicted for murders committed when the defendants were 17. Texas was the most prolific state for killing minors, with a tally of 12 of those executions, more than half the total spanning the years between 1985 and 2002. That's an average of one execution every 17 months of a person who was a child when the crime for which they were convicted occurred. Every year and a half till only 13 years ago in the state of Texas, another young man who had been convicted of a murder that took place when he was 17 years old was eliminated. The second highest tally was in Virginia, with a total of three, one in 1998, and two within three days of each other in the millennial year of 2000, followed by Oklahoma counting two, including that defendant who had been 16. The other perpetrators of this cruel and unusual punishment of minors, each clocking up one execution during those years, were, in chronological order, South Carolina in 1986, Louisiana in 1990, and Missouri and Georgia in 1993. For those of you who are parents of millennials, when your kids were born, the United States was killing young men of the age your children are now for crimes they were convicted of committing when they were in their mid-teens. Between September 11, 1985 and April 3, 2003, roughly every nine and a half months, the USA strapped down a young man onto a gurney and injected him with a cocktail of chemicals in order to kill him as a punishment for something he had done when he was 16 or 17 years old. In one case, the state sat the young man in a chair and electrocuted him to death. During the 15 years before the death penalty for minors was abolished, the United States juvenile execution cohorts were China, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Iran, Pakistan, Yemen, Nigeria, and Saudi Arabia. 
Since 1990, the only country that has legally sanctioned more state killings of minors than the United States has been Iran. No other country has executed even a third the number of those offending minors executed in the United States. So, it has been a long, hard and only recently trodden road to have got to the point now where the United States is debating the current worst punishment that can be inflicted on those convicted as minors. Life without parole. I say current because, though that sentence can now only be handed down rarely, and not automatically as a mandatory sentence, without age and other circumstances being reviewed, there are numerous inmates in the United States who were handed those sentences before 2012, when the Miller v. Alabama ruling imposed more stringent conditions under which it can be imposed. Life without parole is still taking its ongoing heavy toll on minors, even if there are far fewer new recipients of the sentence. If the Supreme Court rules in Henry Montgomery's favour so that Miller v. Alabama can be applied retroactively to his case after 50 years, he will be able to have his sentence reviewed and may get to leave prison in his early 70s. For Adnan Syed, a positive ruling will, sadly, be moot. He's serving a de facto sentence where parole is not an option. In practice, because Maryland's governors routinely oppose it. And in principle, because Adnan's declaration of innocence and consequent indemonstrable remorse exempt him even from consideration by the Parole Commission. But this doesn't make his case irrelevant for coming developments in juvenile justice reform. Maryland is one of three states with the highest proportion of juveniles committed to life sentences. More than 10% of people serving life sentences in Maryland were convicted for crimes committed as teenagers. Many states are repealing harsh adult sentences for convicted minors. Maryland is among those few holding out against the Supreme Court's adjudication of what constitutes cruel and unusual punishment for young offenders. Even if the letter of the particular ruling being discussed next week in the Supreme Court doesn't apply to Adnan Syed, we can only hope that the increasing spirit of leniency towards juvenile offenders that has seen a rapid spurt in the past 10 years since the repeal of the juvenile death penalty will start to seep into the judicial mindset in Maryland as well. If Adnan gets a new trial on the basis of his petition for post-conviction relief against his life sentence, even if his innocence can't be established beyond a reasonable doubt, the momentum towards lightening the burden on current and former young offenders may grant him some hope of a much lighter sentence and foreseeable eventual release. If Adnan Syed is ever released, let us hope that he puts as much energy into advocating for offending minors as he no doubt will for the wrongfully convicted. Because, after all, Sentencing a developing adolescent to a harsh adult sentence is wrong. Whether Adnan Syed is innocent or guilty of the murder of Haymin Lee, he was wrongfully convicted. <laughs>